0: you have a Bible, please open up to John chapter 4. We, uh, we're we in the gospel of John. We started several weeks ago. And as I was studying this week in the passage, we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 30 this week. And John is a book that some pastors get stuck in for years. And, and I know why. Almost every verse, there's such a jewel there. And I... and. I want you, as you do your own study and your own reading, I want you to, to see how just, just in these verses that we'll look at today, these 15 verses, there are so many profound truths that are said by Christ and revealed to us by the Apostle John that just one is sufficient to know God. I mean, they're, they're, they're so glorious and they're so numerous, it's almost, it becomes overwhelming, the weight of the glory of his word. But I pray that it has that right weight on us and that we can hear him today and by his grace have this living water that he promises. If, if you were here last week, then we left off in the middle of a dialogue and I had to break it because it was, I think it was an hour and six minutes last week and it would be another hour plus if I had continued. He's talking to this Samaritan woman at the well, and, and in this dialogue, he is revealing several things. He's revealing her sin, he's revealing himself. He's the Son of God, and he's talking to this woman that we're going to learn a little bit more about today, who he should not have been talking to. If you remember, they he and his disciples had been in the Judean countryside, they've been baptizing, and so they're making this trek from, from Bethany up to Galilee, which is about 70 miles, and the Bible says they, they have to go through Samaria. And we looked last week that they didn't have to geographically. They had to for the gospel because Jesus had an appointment with a very unsuspecting Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in Sychar. And, and this appointment was divinely appointed by God. And Jesus, when he gets there and he meets her, he breaks every social, gender, and religious taboo that a Jew could have broken in speaking to this woman. He asked her, if you remember, he asked her, for a drink from her cup now we look at this last week the jews hated the samaritans and the samaritans they hated the jews and they had for centuries the jews looked at the samaritans as a defiled polluted people their land was polluted their water was polluted their utensils were polluted and therefore for christ to ask for christ one to speak to a woman to speak to a samaritan woman to ask to drink from her cup i mean he couldn't have blown the social structure more than what he was doing here and he's doing it for one reason. He wants her soul. He wants this woman for eternity. And so he goes after her. And he goes after her with this glorious gospel vengeance. And I'm so thankful that he did. He, he offers her living water. And he says to her, if you will drink the water that I have to offer, it will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It will satisfy you and it will bring you into salvation. It will save you. And you won't ever thirst spiritually again. This is what he offers to her. She doesn't get it. Look at verse 15. She says, sir, give me this water. I mean, who wouldn't say, give me this water? He's offering her this incredible blessing. But she doesn't get it, and we know that because she says, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. And so... She's thinking, I'll take the water because I don't want it to come this, mo- this half mile down to this place at noon because she was a social outcast to get this. In other words, she said, sure, why not? Give it to me. It's gonna make my life easier. She still doesn't get it. Christ is not offering her a trick. He's not presenting her a pill or a book or a program. He's offering her life. He's offering her eternal life. He's saying, I, I, w- I wanna take you broken Samaritan woman out of the darkness I want to bring you into the light I want to take you from your death because you are dead and I want to make you alive I want to make you a false worshiper of a false god and I want to make you a true worshiper of the one true living God this is the offer that Jesus makes to her and she's thinking she's going to have to you know have a place where she doesn't have to come to a well and and go to uh draw water anymore And so he presses her, and he presses her hard. In fact, when we get to verse 16, he's at the pinnacle of this movement in her coming out and being saved. And I want us to see in his relentless pursuit, he does three things. He exposes her heart, he exposes true worship, and then he exposes himself, he reveals himself. Her heart, true worship, and himself. Let's look at the first, exposing her heart. Verse 16, Jim, can you take a look at that for me, please? So we don't have that horrible buzz the entire time. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. Verse 18, For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so he offered her the gospel. And he said, I, take the living water. And so he offers her this incredible blessing, but she would not receive it because she could not receive it, right? Her heart is dead. And so the gospel goes to her, but a dead heart cannot receive the good news of the gospel of grace. In fact, Jesus will say in a few chapters in John 6:44, no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the father who sent me draws him. And the father is drawing her and Jesus is doing some work on her and he has to do some work on her And what he's doing is he's getting the sin out. He's bringing it to the surface. When he says, go call your husband, that in the Greek, it's an imperative. It's a command. He's not giving her an option. He's telling her, go get your husband. Go get your husband. And he's saying this because he knows she doesn't have a husband. He knows that she's been divorced five times, and the man she's living with is her live-in boyfriend. He knows this, and that's why he asks it. I have no husband, she said. He says, you're right in saying, I have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. He is intentionally bringing out her life, debilitating sin. He's doing it on purpose, but it's not to embarrass her. They're alone. He sent the disciples away. He's guarding her even in that moment, and he's not doing it to humiliate her. He asks her this question so she will say with her mouth, because he loves her. He loves her, and He knows that she needs to see her desperate need for the living water. She needs to see her desperate need for him. And so he brings this sin out. God made man and woman to come together in the bond of marriage and stay together until death. She had gone through five husbands. And the man that she's living with, the sixth man, is outside the covenant of marriage. She had ruined herself. She had ruined herself. She was a defiled woman. She had ruined her reputation, her purity, her character. And Jesus needs her to see how desperate her situation is. To put away all this this piety. She says to him, I have no husband. Which is a truthful statement, but it's also a lie on the other hand. She was not married at that point in time. She was divorced and living in sin. And Christ so desperately wants her to see her need for him. And what he does is he's, he's coming from the outside in, he wants her to see the mess that's in her heart because that's where the problem really is. He is, Jesus is systematically moving her from external to internal, from religion to the gospel. And he's doing that intentionally and he's doing it methodically to get her to look at her inner life, the things that she possibly kept secret. And here this man tells her because he's a prophet You don't have a husband, you've had five, and the one you're with is not your husband. This living water that he offered her, it's not consumed with our mouths. It's made to go inside. When we use the word heart, when I'm using the word heart here, don't think heart as in pumping blood. Heart, the core of your being, the foundation of your soul, the essence of who you are. And so the living water must be consumed by the heart. But she's got a problem. Her heart is the problem. Her heart is dead and therefore she cannot take it in. She cannot consume it. Clearly, in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's not like this this woman led this godly life and she had these few besetting sins of divorce and adultery that were hanging over her. Her heart was desperately wicked, just like ours, just like all men. Because God insists upon saving this woman Because God insists upon making this woman a worshiper who will worship him in spirit and in truth, he must present to her her dead condition to make her spiritually alive. And so Jesus brings out the sin that she might see that her heart is truly dead. And then he, the great heart surgeon, goes to work and he circumcises and he cuts away and he takes this heart of stone and he makes it flesh and he makes it alive again, spiritually alive You are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you are now with is not your husband. How devastating for her to hear this from a complete stranger. I mean, it was bad enough. She's there at noon. She went a half mile when there were wells that were closer to get away from all the women and all the people saying you, you, you and now the stranger calls her on it. Horrible, horrible. You say, well, if God loves her, why would he do this? Because Jesus Christ knows that saving faith is always accompanied by repentance. Saving faith, saints, is always accompanied by repentance. If you do not repent, you cannot be saved. No woman goes through five marriages and then ends up living with a sixth man out of wedlock unless she is horribly thirsty, ravenously so. Christ wants to bring this soul-crushing thirst that she does not see to bear upon her heart and mind that she might know that she is dead. And so he brings the sin to bear on her. She needed to see it. She needed to see that no man other than Jesus Christ could satisfy that thirst. She needed to see that it wasn't gonna be in marriage and it wasn't gonna be in companionship and it wasn't gonna be in adultery that she would be able to satisfy that thirst that thirst that's in the heart and soul of every man that doesn't know Christ. He wants her to see the ruinous path that she's on because she's on a path of destruction. She's dead. Her end is hell. And Christ has presented to her a path of life. And he wants her. He wants her. He says the same to us. I mean, we can quickly read ourselves out of this and say, well, I want to be Jesus. I want to share the gospel. I don't want to be the Samaritan woman because the Samaritan woman's a sinner and he can save. But that's who we are. And I, I think the weight of this and why John the Apostle put it here is that he wants us to know that Jesus knows us. Jesus knows you. He is the great prophet. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. He knows everything about you. He knows all your thoughts, all your words, all your actions before you act. He is the great prophet. There's no hiding from him. And yet, how often are we just like this woman? She's moving from marriage to marriage, from relationship to relationship. How often do we do that? We move from place to place or job to job or friend to friend, thinking, if I can just get that, then I'll be satisfied. Then this this thirst in me that I cannot quench will finally be quenched. Some of you know this. Some of you in Christ are not settled in Christ. That's still longing for whatever it is that you think that if you can drink from this world that you will have that satisfaction, that spring of water that leaps up to eternal life. There is no spring other than Christ. There is no water other than what Christ offers. And if any of you have lived even a few years, you know that. You know that. So by exposing her heart He exposes our heart and he's calling a full stop here. Christ is saying enough with it already. Enough trying to live, truly live and be satisfied and glorify my father in the flesh. Enough. You cannot, you cannot satisfy a spiritual thirst with your eyes or your ears. You cannot satisfy The thirst of the soul was something that you eat with your mouth, or a movie that you watch, or something you do with your hands. There's nothing external that you can do to take away that need for Christ. Only Christ can, and only living water can. Her heart is the problem. Our heart is the problem. It's not an outside issue, it's an inside issue. And if it's an inside issue, we need an inside solution. Her drawing, her never having to go to Jacob's well and draw water again, that's an external solution. It won't solve the internal problem. It won't fix her heart. Her heart needs to be fixed. Our hearts need to be fixed. And that's why Jesus says, I am the living water. He says, I, I'm the heart surgeon. I'm the one that's come to do the circumcision of the heart that will make you alive. So first, I pray that we see the exposure of her heart is the exposure of our heart. And if we want the living water of Jesus Christ, we must repent as well. We cannot have saving faith apart from repentance. We just come before God and say, I- I'm worse than this woman. This woman has nothing on my sin. And stand before God and say, I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need you to save me. But Jesus starts there with her because she couldn't receive it otherwise. And then, and then he appoints the second point is he exposes true worship because if she's going to be saved, then she's got to worship the living God. Look at the second point, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> that is humorous, given what she just said. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You know, many read this and they think that, that she's, trying to, she's trying to do some verbal judo here and, and to get the prophet off her heels because he's way too close. And they say, well, it's a diversion, right? It's a smokescreen. Where do we worship? Here, there, where? I, I, don't, I don't believe that. And I, I've heard that taught and you can render in on that after I'm done teaching on this. I think she's sincerely asking. I really do. And, and I'll tell you Why? She knows he's a prophet because he just revealed things to her that no way that he could have known unless he's a prophet. And so I I think it would be foolhardy to assume that he would not know that she's trying to divert the dialogue. I mean, he just told her about her marriage and her divorce and according to um, some of the latter verses, much more about her life. There was dialogue there. Um, I mean, if you're not going to tell a guy that has a laser focus on your heart, yeah, I'm going to try to trick you here. I don't think she's doing that. I really don't. I believe that she is sincerely asking him about worship. And I believe that because the weight of her sin is now upon her. And when we begin to understand the weight of our own sin by the Holy Spirit, the first thing we want to do is find God, worship God, somehow to remove this weight. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She said, you know, we've worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And, and you, Jews, you say that the right place to worship is in the temple. I mean, she's asking the prophet. She's assuming surely he would know. I mean, if he, if he can tell her about the inner recesses of her own heart, then certainly he can tell her where she needs to worship, where she needs to go to worship God and get this living water. Remember, she's an outcast. She's an outcast in her own culture. Unlikely that she was welcomed at Mount Gerizim. We know she was an outcast in the Jewish culture, she's a Samaritan woman. So she would not have been welcomed to the temple. So where does this woman go in order to worship the living God? Where does does someone go who is so unworthy to get this living water? She's asking because she wants to know. At that time, worship was around a location and a place and a temple, the real living God and false gods, temples made by men, the Jews believed that, that God would manifest himself in the temple in Jerusalem for the Jews to worship him. And all the other false gods, most, had temples as well where the God would manifest himself in some fashion and then commune with the people. And so there was an emphasis on location and, and procedure and place. And so she's asking, Samaritan or Gerizim? I mean, uh, Jerusalem or Gerizim, which one? And Jesus answers her seriously. I, I don't believe that Christ would have answered her if she were trying to trick him, he's very good about that. He answers her. But not only does he answer her, in a couple of verses, he gives one of the most profound statements about worship and all the Bible. So not only does he answer her, but he, he levels her question. In fact, he levels religion completely. Why does he do that? Remember, he's after her soul, he wants her in the purest sense. He wants her for eternity. He wants her to be part of the family. And so he turns her question about worship, what place, what temple, what time, what procedure, he takes it again from the outside and he brings it in. He said, stop thinking about geographic location. Let's talk about the posture of your heart. He just dealt with it previously, saying it was filled with sin. And now he's gonna show her how she can worship the living God. Look at verse 21. These verses are so deep. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. Key right there, by the way. Believe me. Trust me. Christ is saying, trust him. Believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then he says, you worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And then verse 23, he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We could just stop right there. That's such an amazing, he says, believe me, trust me, listen to me, lovely woman who I'm going to save, because what I'm gonna say is earth shattering. I mean, this, what he says is so cataclysmic to everything they believed, there wasn't a pagan God that didn't have a place with a temple where there were sacrifices, where you didn't engage in worship. Everybody's worldview, pagan and, and Jew, was like this. And he's taking the whole thing and dismantling it all together. Is it any wonder they killed him? He said, The hour is coming when the location of the worship of God will have no bearing on a person's soul. None. Not a location, not a time, not a place, and not a temple. In fact, God made sure of this. You know this from your history. In 70 AD, he utterly destroyed the temple in Jerusalem so no one would go back there. It has not been rebuilt. On Mount Gerizim, maybe you do not know this, on Mount Gerizim in 67 AD, the Romans who destroyed the Jewish temple went up to Mount Gerizim and they slaughtered 11,000 Samaritans who were worshiping God. No worship. Not there, not in Jerusalem. Jesus said, you worship what you do not know. The Samaritans had a, they believed in the Pentateuch, but they had, it was commingled with paganism. It was a mess. It's a mess today, by the way. Um, still doing it. They had a false image of God. They were worshiping God in vain. Says, you're worshiping. He says to her, you're worshiping the wrong God. And then he says, the Jews, on the other hand, we, we know Yahweh, and he's saying that we have the God of the full Bible. They believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books, and then the rest of the books all the way through Malachi. So he says, we've accepted the full revelation of God through the Old Testament, through the Scriptures. But they're no better off, and we know that. The Jews at the time that Christ, they they were apostate too. Say, well, how, how do we know that? Salvation is from the Jews. And salvation is from the Jews not because the Jews were saved, but because Jesus, the consummate Jew, is the Savior. The Savior comes from the Jews. The Savior comes from the house of David. And this is why it was, I would say, more grievous for the Jews than the Samaritans. Their Bible, the Bible, has over 300 specific prophecies to the person of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He says, I'm here. And they didn't believe. He says, the the hour is coming and is now here. Why? Because Christ says, I'm here. And they rejected him. They were fully apostate. Far worse, in my opinion, than the Samaritans. But then Jesus says... None of that matters now. Gerizim, Jerusalem, this temple, that temple. Animal sacrifices, incense, and none of it matters. Look at what he says. The hour is coming and is now here in his presence when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such worshipers. That is an amazing statement. God is the one who seeks worshipers. I always find it humorous when churches become seeker-sensitive. God is seeker-sensitive. He's the one that goes out. We're supposed to proclaim the gospel. We're supposed to magnify God so that when people see him, God says, I'm coming after you, as Christ did with this woman. God, Jesus is saying here, the worship of his father would not be bound, listen, saints, by any location or any physical temple made by man or by the traditions of fathers. It would be enjoyed and it would be embraced By all those who worship him in spirit and truth. All those. God seeks true worshipers. What a compelling message for the church today. You say, well, what is a true worshiper? We'll get to the spirit and truth. But a true worshiper is someone who knows God. Someone who loves God. Someone who's loved by God. Someone who's known by God as a son or a daughter. That's a true worshiper. A true worshiper is someone who has entered into a relationship with the Father through the son, by grace, by this unmerited gift, by this living water being handed to that person and that person receiving it and drinking it all the way in. That's a true worshiper. A true worshiper is someone who has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. A true worshiper is not someone who worships a false god or multiple gods. A true worshiper, listen closely, is not someone in the church because of their parents. A true worshiper is not someone who is in a gospel-centered, Bible-believing church to find a husband or a wife. A true worshiper is not someone in church because they feel guilty. God says, I'm seeking true worshipers, and a true worshiper will worship me in spirit and in truth. All of you, most of you have heard that multiple times. In spirit and in truth. So Jesus, again, you notice this. The whole movement of this dialogue is outside in, external, external. Internal religion, gospel, whole movement keeps going back in. Jesus takes the focus off of the where and he puts it on the who. Who are we going to worship? The Father, and how are we going to worship Him in spirit and truth? Forget about the temple. Let's talk about the Father. Let's talk about the heart, and let's talk about truth. The Samaritans and the Jews at this time they had lost their focus. They were no longer worshiping the Creator. That's why there was all this debate, and the Samaritans debate with the Jews as to where God actually manifests himself, Gerizim or Jerusalem. All this debate. They were into procedure and place and, and festival and vestiment and sacrifices and incense and all the things, many of which were commanded in the Old Testament, many of which were not, that were added. But Christ says, all of that now in me stops because it's culminated in him. They had missed the worship of the Father with all their religion. Religion does that. Religion takes our eyes off the Father. Religion makes a mess of everything. And when I say, when I use that term religion, I'm talking about those things that God hates. Christ came to destroy false religion that we might know him. He said the hour was coming, Jesus said, and was now here. Because instead of a mountain or instead of a temple, or instead of having priests that need to intercede for us, Jesus says, I'm your new temple. It's Jesus. He's saying, I am the one now that you will come to and rest in and know God the Father in. There's a a great verse. We'll get to it in John chapter 14, verse 13, small verse. The Father is glorified in the Son. That's as simple as it gets. The Father is glorified in the Son. If you want to worship God the Father, which the Samaritans and the Jews said they did, then you have to be in the Son. You have to know Christ. It's that simple. There is no worshiping God the Father, the one true living God, unless you are in Christ, unless you know Christ. The hour had come to this woman. It had come to the Samaritans. It had come to Jerusalem. It comes to Camden Avenue Baptist Church. It's gone throughout the world that in order to worship God, you have to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, period. You have to know Him. If you reject Christ, you're unsavable. If you if you reject Christ, you cannot worship the living God. You cannot. Jesus says, "I I take the place, not another mountain, not another temple, not another city." It's why gospel believers fight against those movements to erect things and build things. Christ is our temple. Do you remember in John 2:19 what he said? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Through his death and his resurrection, the old temple, the old system, it dies. It dies. It becomes obsolete as he becomes the new everlasting temple. A place, remember, the temple was a place where man could go to God and man could offer a sacrifice that a holy God would not kill him. And Jesus is saying, I'm that temple. You want to come and worship my Father? You're a sinner. You need to be made right. You come to me, and through the cross, I will make you clean. I will purify you. Jesus Christ is the only place where a man can worship the Father and not be killed in Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, we have the covering of his blood. We have the sacrificial atonement that he made on the cross for us. It's a most terrifying thing to to enter in the presence of a holy God without Christ. In fact, I would say it's the most terrifying thing to engage in worship like this. I know we take it lightly, but this is a holy endeavor, and he's a holy God, and if you come in here apart from Christ, you ought to be rightly terrified. Can I get one amen for that? All right. Hebrews 10, listen to this. Christ came into the world. He said this. This is Jesus saying, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Enough of that. But a body you have prepared for me, his body. And then he says in verse 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then Christ said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That's the Old Testament. Jesus says, I've come to do your will. What was the will of the Father for the Son in the Old Testament? Hebrews 10, 9, to do away with the first system of worship. That's what it says literally, to do away with the first system of worship, away with the tabernacle, away with the temple, away with the, the priests and their vestments and their sacrifices, away with it. It's amazing how many so-called churches hang on to that stuff. In order to do what? It continues in verse 9, in order to establish the second. What is the second? It's a personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. That's the second. Do away with the old Under the new covenant, Christ is the temple. Our worshiping God the Father is in Christ. Our knowing and being loved by the Father is through Christ. He is our sacrificial lamb. He is our covering. He is our atonement. He's everything. And then it says in verse 10, for us to be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once and for all. The hour had come because Jesus had come, and he was seeking worshipers of his Father. He was seeking them out. That means men and women and children from every walk of life can come to Christ and live. We can come and drink. We don't have to go to Gerizim or Jerusalem or this temple or that. Every man and woman can drink wherever they are through Jesus Christ, through repentance and faith. It is the great news that through Christ we can we can serve God and we can really worship God and we can receive from Christ this living water. There's a great verse in Revelation 22:1 in Christ, from whom the river of the water of light, life, bright as crystal, flows from his throne. We can go and we can drink deeply from Christ and he satisfies, he satisfies all the way to the bottom. In Christ, we are equipped to. Worship God in spirit and in truth. It's such a glorious summation of how we're to worship. And you know, it always brings us back to Christ. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 6? He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. God is spirit. How are we going to worship God who is spirit if we're only in the flesh, if we're only dead? How does that work? We cannot. We must be made alive. And that means, my beloved, before you were saved, all of your worship. Whatever that looked like. Maybe some of you went to church. Maybe some of you thought, well, I'll worship God by, by serving the poor or helping the elderly. Or, or maybe some of you said, well, I'll give away my money. And, and you did all these things. All of that done apart from the Spirit of God making you alive was done in the flesh. It was dead worship. Completely vain. Actually, it was idolatry. If the Spirit of God does not make your spirit alive, and it is your spirit that he's talking about... Worshiping God in spirit and truth is not the Holy Spirit, capital S. It's your spirit that's been made alive by the Holy Spirit. That has to happen. That has to happen. How many people are in churches today who have not been made alive by the Spirit of God? And they've been in church their whole life. They've been baptized, and they're going to take communion, and they profess Christ, and they claim to be a Christian, and they're not alive. Dead people do not have relationships if someone is spiritually dead, they cannot have a relationship with God who is spirit. They must be made alive in order to worship in spirit and in truth. So many today need to be saved. So many in the church today need to be saved. Whatever title you, you, you claim and whatever church membership you align with, it will mean nothing when you stand before a holy God outside of Christ. He will say you're still dead. You're dead. So when God calls us and Jesus saves us, and the Spirit of God makes our spirit alive, and there's that, that kindred spirit with him, it means, that, it means you'll stop going through the motions of worship. It means that you won't go to church on a Sunday morning because it's Sunday. It means you won't sing because you feel like you have to sing. It means you won't pray because you think if you don't pray, God's going to get mad at you and, and do something bad all of the desires in the spirit change. It means that throughout the week, as you are worshiping God every moment of every day, you can't wait for Sunday. It means you can't wait to sing with brothers and sisters. It means that you can't wait to get home from work to crack your Bible to hear God speak to you. It means you can't wait to get on your knees and pray to him for hours. The desires change in the spirit. Everything changes. And ask yourself, did you, are you here because you think you have to be here? If you are here and you're just thinking, oh, if you would just stop talking and then we can leave, there's something wrong with your spirit. And I'm not saying because I am such a great preacher, do not misunderstand that. I'm saying that the desire changes. My beloved, if your spirit is in Christ, the most pathetic preacher who's preaching the word of God, you, you'll gobble it up. I had a, a, a pastor... Um, that I've been meeting with, and he asked me to, I've been listening to some of his sermons, and he said, can you, can you give me some feedback? And I said, well, I have to go back and listen to him. He goes, oh, no, I don't want you to do that. I said, listen, when I'm listening to your sermon, I'm just eating, I'm feeding, I love it. So I'm not thinking about him, I'm not thinking about all the things you want me to critique you on. He's like, okay, so I will go back. But the desires change, they ought to change, they have to change, if we are truly worshiping God in spirit. And that means with a sincere heart, the desires have been changed by God. We can worship God anywhere. In fact, we can change that say we have to worship God. We're called to worship God anywhere. You don't have to wait till Sunday to worship God. What a horrible week. Every moment of every day, in all places, at all times, you have been saved to worship God. Always. Even when you're sleeping, you can worship God. You ever confess sin in your dreams? You're worshiping God as your dream. All right. Desire has to be in the Spirit. The Spirit has to be given by the Holy Spirit. But it also says in truth, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. We don't understand it. The flesh doesn't understand it. We don't understand truth. But once you're saved and the Spirit dwells within you, you can understand truth. And when God says he's seeking worshipers that worship him in spirit and truth, it certainly means the word of God. It means that God has told us through his word how we are to worship him. That there's, there's, a, there, there's a, a manual on how to do it. And I, I know we've lost that today. With all the shenanigans going on in the churches today, we think, well, there are no boundaries. There are boundaries. And there's great freedom in the boundaries too. So you can have churches that are doing things differently within the context of scripture, but there are things that churches are doing that are not in the Bible, and they should stop. Worshiping in truth is worshiping God As he has prescribed for us to worship him, as he's taught us to worship him. By God's grace, we have strived here for years now to align our worship, our corporate worship, our family worship, and our personal worship as the Bible teaches. That it's not this free for all; we do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it. You say, "Well, I'm worshiping in the spirit." You may think you're worshiping in the spirit, but if you're not worshiping in truth, you're not worshiping in the spirit of God. It may be spiritual something, but it's not of Christ. Christ always worshiped in perfect spirit and in perfect truth. And so too are we. So too are we. Great place for us to check some of the things that we do. But, but I think I do at a deeper level when it says that we are to worship God in spirit and truth. I think he's talking about Christ. I, I really do. I, absolutely God's word, Christ's word. But Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the, I am the truth. So I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, the only way to get to the Father, the only way to worship the Father is Christ who is truth. And that means, again, God the Father is seeking worshipers that worship him in spirit, the Holy Spirit making your spirit alive, and in truth, in Christ, in his Son. No Christ, no worship of God. In Christ, a true worship of the Father. Okay, so Christ, he exposes this woman's heart. He brings out her sin that she might drink deeply from this living water. And then she asks, where do I worship? And he points her, not to Gerizim, not to Jerusalem, not to a temple. He points her to himself. And he says, my father is seeking worshipers, but these these worshipers that my father is seeking, they must worship him in spirit and in truth. Enough with the temple's. Enough of the sacrifices. Christ is the temple. Christ is the sacrifice. Can I give you one more point? Are you still with me? Our Lord exposes himself, he reveals himself. Look at verse 25. Like I said, this passage is just full of gems that we could turn and look at for hours. The woman said to him, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, one of the most profound verses in all the sacred scripture, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. <laughs> this woman knew the Pentateuch enough. That's where she's getting this, Deuteronomy chapter 18. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, speaking of Christ, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 18, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. So even the Samaritans were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Savior to come, not just the Jews. And the one, this Messiah, would tell them all things. What has he been speaking about to her? He's talking to her about living water. He's talked to her about these heavenly things. He's, he's revealed himself as a prophet. And the Messiah was going to do that. He was in to talk about heaven and hell and the plan of salvation and the holiness of God and the depth of our sin and the need for Christ and the cross itself and all these things Christ is talking about. And so she's, she's a good detective. She's thinking, maybe it's you. She's really asking a question. She's, she's saying, are you the Messiah? And Jesus gets that she's asking that. And he says to her, I am he. It literally says in the Greek, I who speak to you am. There's no he. The am is a better translation. In the Greek, it literally says, I, I am. It's an emphatic I am. It is the great I am. It is the I am that I am that God revealed to Moses when Moses said, who am I going to tell the people sent me? And God said what? Tell them, I am sent you. You know what Jesus is doing. The Samaritans and the Jews, when they were looking for the Messiah, they weren't looking for God. They were looking for a great prophet, a great man, a great savior, but not God. And Jesus says, oh, I am the Messiah, and I am God. I am the Messiah, and I'm God. 23 times, 23 times, Jesus claims the divine title, I am, I am, I am. They killed him because he kept saying it. He kept saying it because it's true. This, my beloved, this is the climax of the entire Bible. Certainly this dialogue and certainly this book, but the entire Bible, when Jesus says, I am the Messiah and I am God, there's no greater revelation, none. And and what's so amazing to me, look at who he tells first. He doesn't, he doesn't tell Nicodemus, the great teacher of Israel. He hasn't even told his disciples yet. He tells a five-time divorced, adulterous, Samaritan woman. In his culture, at his time, there was no person lower. He could not have found someone that was more detestable in the eyes of the world than she. And he goes to her, and he says to her, I am the great I am. I'm God. That's glorious news for someone like me. And if you're true with yourself, someone like you. Because if Christ can go to the Samaritan woman, then maybe there's hope for me. Maybe there's hope for us. That Christ will come to us too. And that Christ will speak truth to us as well. And that he will come to us and he will say to us, I am the Savior. That we might trust and believe God's timing is perfect. It is providential. I would say it's always providential. Notice what happens in verse 27. The disciples just so happened to come on scene as our Lord is saying this. Verse 27, just then, and literally that means just when Jesus was saying, I am the great I am, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? I mean, they had been around him long enough. It had been a foolish question. Right? They just kept their mouths shut, but they heard him say to her, I am the Messiah, I am God. They heard him say it. Her response is glorious. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. She left her water jar. I was, I was intrigued by this. You say, well, John the Apostle's writing it. He's an eyewitness. Why would he put that in there? It's such a strange little detail. Don't go, don't blow by details. Say, why would, he, why would he say that? She left her water jar. So what? She took her water jar. So what? Some people say, well, she left the water jar because she was in a big hurry. Maybe, maybe. Some say she, she left the water jar because Jesus had yet to get a drink. That was the first question, right? He said, give me a drink. He's still thirsty. maybe. Maybe some people say, well, she was planning on coming back, therefore why take, take it a mile round trip? Just leave it. I think that, that John's doing what John does, and he's tying something small into something great. But there's a symbol here in her leaving her jar. Something had taken place in her heart. Remember, when she's attached to Jacob's well, she's attached to the traditions of her father, and the entire dialogue between the living water and the water from the well was salvation and dead religion when he offered her living water, she said, I'll take because I don't have to come back down here again. Maybe, just maybe, her leaving behind the bucket was a testimony of her leaving the old religion. She was leaving it. She was leaving the traditions of her fathers. She was forgetting about Gerizim and about Jerusalem. She was leaving it behind and she was embracing the living water that Christ had offered. And, and maybe it was springing up in her a well to eternal life. And that's why she couldn't get back and do what? She blazes into the town. Remember who she is. She's a woman of ill repute. And she blazes into the town. And and I'm sure a crowd gathered because it says the entire town went out to her. And she says, listen, he told me all that I ever did. This woman's on fire with the gospel. She's also wise. She says, can this be the Christ? She doesn't say, you got to believe me. She has no reason for them to believe anything she says. She says, can this be the Christ? Can he be the one that we've all been talking about and all been waiting for, especially during that messianic age? And God is so gracious. Do you see what he did? Through this defiled woman's testimony, he saves many Samaritans. It says that many came out and many believed. The gospel In this very early stage, going beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, into Samaria, fulfilling what Paul says in Ephesians 2.13, Now you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. But they weren't just coming. Jump down with me with your eyes, please, to verse 39, because they believed. It says in verse 39, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Verse 40, So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Jesus Christ, this great Jewish rabbi, stays in Samaria, in Sychar, for two days, preaching and teaching the gospel of grace to those most hated by the Jews. Then in verse 41, and many many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know, listen to this, that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They got it. They got it. They were drinking the living water. They were taking into the depth of their souls this life, this salvation that Jesus Christ had offered. Jesus went after her, this outcast, an adulterous divorcee, because he loved her. He loved her not because of who she was or what she had done or not done, because he has set his love upon her and he pursued her like the hound of heaven that he is. No man loved her, but Christ did. She never sought him out, he sought her. And through this testimony of the shameful woman, God brings the gospel to many and many repent and many believe and many drink. It says, they indeed believe that he was the Savior of the world. Paul was right in Romans chapter 12. God shows no partiality. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. If God is calling upon you, call on him. If he's come to you at that well, at that point, and he's saying to you, I am the living water, I am the Messiah. Repent and believe. Leave your bucket. Leave your religion. Leave your idolatry. And go after this one, this prophet, this Messiah, this king. And do it this morning. He offers us the same hope. It's the same hope and the same prophet and the same Messiah. He's saying to you, Whether you know it or not, he's saying, I am the living water that you were made to drink. Christ is saying that to you. He's saying to you, I am the one that can quench that burning thirst in your soul. He's saying to you, I am the prophet who knows you through and through. He's saying, I know everything about you and I still want you. He's saying, I know you to the bottom and I love you all the way to the top. Jesus is saying to you, I am the Messiah, I am the Savior. He's saying that I I came and I ascended the cross to die for you. He's saying to you this morning, I came to make you a true worshiper of God. A true worshiper. No longer confused, no longer going through the motions, no longer gathering on a Sunday morning for all the wrong reasons, but someone who worships the Father in spirit and in truth. Christ has come this morning whether you're aware of it or not to lay your heart bare to lay you out so that you can become a true worshiper of him that you can in spirit and truth worship the father that was your divine appointment this morning you said I thought I was just going to church there is no such thing as just going to church there is only encountering the living God he comes this morning my beloved to fill you with hope and joy and satisfaction that comes from the living water that he offers. The woman said in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming and Jesus is saying to you and to me this morning, I have come. I am here. Put your trust in him. Drink deeply from the living well of our Lord. Pastor Kurt's going to come up and, after I pray and we're going, to, we're going to take an opportunity before we receive communion. Communion is for the believer. If you have professed Christ and you have been baptized then the communion service is for you. Pastor Kurt's going to read through um, what it means to be a member of this body. What, what we as a church say yes amen to as members of the body of Christ here. And, and I want you to reflect upon that and I want you to reflect upon what it means to take communion the juice and the bread that represent the broken body and spilled blood of Christ. He's saying, drink from me deeply and eat from me deeply that you might be satisfied. This is such glorious teaching. Go back, read this tonight, read it tomorrow, study it yourself, find the jewels, chew on them, feed on them deeply, will you? You do that, so good, so good. I feel stingy at times during the week. I'm like, oh, this is so good. Who else gets to eat? Eat, eat, eat. Let's pray. Father, this is, the, your word is so extraordinary. And what you communicated here to us through the Samaritan woman, it is, it's breathtaking, Lord. She would go to her and, and you would call her because you love her. And that you would save her because she's become a daughter of yours. And that you, Lord, that you would tell her, you would tell her that you're the Messiah and that you are God grace beyond grace that you would testify to you being the great I am. Father, reveal yourself to us as such this morning. Make us into worshipers that worship the Father in spirit and truth. Enough, Lord, of religion. Enough of our days being consumed by idolatry. Enough of gathering here on a Sunday or a Wednesday because this is where we're supposed to be. Change our desires Make us right inside, Lord, that we might worship you with our whole life. We ask that you would do this great work in us for your glory, for the glory of your Son, and for the glory of the Holy Spirit. We ask these things in his name. Amen.